Hello, fellow readers. I'm Fasti Kaltz. In today's episode, Mervyn talks to Damon Golgut, and the book lounge staff chat about some sci-fi and fantasy books. Welcome to the first episode of season two of A Reader's Community, a podcast brought to you by the Book Lounge. We are thrilled to be back with a new season of author interviews and book recommendations from the Book Lounge staff. There are some really spectacular books coming out in South Africa this year, and we can't wait to share them with you. Damon is a very esteemed South African novelist and playwright who has twice been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. His new novel, The Promise, is a masterpiece about a family in crisis. The book is coming out in the first week of May and has already been met with rave reviews and truly impressive shout-outs from incredible authors around the world. Mervyn sat down with Damon to discuss the book. I'm absolutely thrilled to be talking to um, Damon Galgut today about his new novel, The Promise. Hi, Mervyn. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. Um, I was fortunate enough, extremely fortunate, to get an advanced copy of uh, the book. And it is a absolutely fantastic novel. It really, it, it blew me away. And the reading experience was intense, engaging, provocative, uh, everything you want from good literature. And it stayed with me for quite a while. But you don't have to take my word for it. Um, I've been having a look at um, some of the buzz that's going on overseas because the book is going to be published in a couple of months' time in the UK and in the States. And I'm just going to mention a couple of comments which are, which are coming through from overseas reviews. And I've, I've really had to limit myself here because there are a tremendous amount from a lot of very, very well-renowned, wonderful writers. Um, Irish writer Colm Tobin has said that the promise is fully rooted in contemporary South Africa, but the novel's weather moves into the elemental while attending also to the daily, the detailed and the personal. The story has an astonishing sense of depth, as though the characters were imagined over time with slow, tender care. Garth Greenwell refers to it as one of the great achievements of modernism in its imagistic brilliance, its caustic disentachment, its relentless research into the human. For formal innovation and moral seriousness, Damon Golgut is very nearly without peer. He is an essential writer. Claire Massoud, amongst other things, talks about it as an experience of art, which happens only rarely and is to be prized. That is an incredible selection of quotes and comments from your peers overseas. Um, and I was wondering, firstly, how that makes you feel. But is there a sense in which you feel a little bit more fated, appreciated internationally than you do in South Africa at the moment? That's probably been the case, you know, with previous books too, to be honest, only because the literary scene and the reading scene in South Africa is way smaller than it is in, in other places. And um, it's just not possible to generate the same sort of buzz. I, I wouldn't want anyone to think I feel underappreciated here. I I don't. But it is great to get that kind of response, you know, from writers whose work I really admire. It comes with an element of surprise, I have to say, in the sense that um, right through the creation of this book, I was perpetually insecure about whether it was working or not. Um, you've read it, so you, you may have a better sense than most readers will of why uh, I might have had that worry. Um, you know, it's it's written with a voice that moves very, very 
fast and fluidly from one point of view to another. It bounces between characters and points of view like a squash ball. And that's not how you're supposed to write a novel. You're supposed to ground certain characters in well-established scenes so that people get a sense of who they are before you move on to another scene and so on. So there was an experimental approach attached to the book. Um, I would never let a student of mine attempt a book in this particular style, uh, but it seemed suited to the way my own mind works um, and maybe just to the way my own writing works. And so I sort of kept kept going with it. But uh, it was gratifying, especially gratifying because there was so much insecurity in the writing to receive, you know, the kind of response that it seems to be getting. I'll come back to that, the, the choices you made about the way you told the story, because I, I think it is really, really interesting. I just want to just for obviously, you know, the vast majority of people listening to this, I will, will not have had a chance to, to read The Promise yet. So just to give a very uh, sort of brief overview. The book tells the story of a family, the Swat family, in, in four parts. But the, the parents and their three children, they're farm dwellers up north in South Africa. Each part of the novel uh, centers on a death and a, and a funeral. So we begin with the, the death of the mother of the family, Rachel. And, and the promise of the, the title refers to a sort of whispered conversation uh, before she dies. It goes on between, between her and her husband, Marnie, which is overheard by the youngest daughter, Amor. And she hears Rachel uh, imploring her husband, Amor's father, to, to promise that he will transfer a piece of land uh, with a sort of ramshackle house on it in which the, their domestic worker lives, transfer ownership of that to the domestic worker. Damon, this is, this, is, this is a very, very South African novel. It is a novel of South Africa. It's a novel of, of our time, of over the last uh, uh, 25 years. Where, where did this come from? What was the, the initial impulse of the story that you wanted to tell? It actually sprang out of two separate, I want to say anecdotes, but that's not quite right, out of the accounts of two separate friends of mine. The first, um, someone who's about 10 years older than me, who is the last surviving member of his family. He's lost his mother, father, brother, sister. He's, he's the only one left. He happens to be a very funny raconteur. And he, I mean, it sounds you know, counterintuitive, but he, he had me in stitches with his stories of the four family funerals that he attended. Funerals tend, like weddings, to be places where unlikely groups of people come together and all kinds of family tensions play out. And it occurred to me after listening to him that it would be quite an interesting way to tell the story of a family through the kind of snapshot, if you like, of four funerals. And then I started thinking, well, you could, you could do more with it than just tell a family story. If you set each funeral in a different decade of South African history with a, a different president in power and a different kind of ethos hanging over the land. But then another story sort of found its way in. And this was, again, a, a friend of mine who did grow up on a kind of rough farm outside Pretoria and whose mother died of cancer when he was fairly young. And she had been looked after in her last months by the family's domestic worker, who'd done kind of everything for her. 
everything that's involved in looking after somebody who's really sick. And it was her dying wish, which she got the entire family to agree to, that they would sign this domestic worker's house over to her. Not a fancy house, a kind of a broken down place on a fairly nondescript piece of land. And although the entire family was there and agreed to it, they have contrived or did contrive for quite a long time after that, I'm talking about decades, not to carry out this agreement, which, as you've pointed out, is a very South African thing. Um, and it occurred to me that if I could stitch that thread through the other scenario, these four funerals, that I could be telling a story that a lot of South Africans might relate to. There's another aspect of this, which is uh, the world's full of stories. I get ideas for stories, you know, often, daily even. But most of them are not of huge interest. They're, they're kind of a little spark that passes. As I get older, I find my obsessions more and more focused on time and the passing of time. You know, I think when you're younger, you're much more caught up in action, which is to say plot. But time is a whole other subject. So I was very drawn by the, you know, the scenario of the funerals, in part because it reflects my own obsessions. You know, I think not about funerals, but about getting older and ultimately dying. And, you know, what does a life mean when you reach that final conclusive point? So I guess the idea fitted with where my own psyche is at, at you know, at the moment. So that was part of the pull. There, there was that very personal aspect to it too. I can think of quite a few writers, um, middle-aged and older, um, and I think all male, um, who in later life as, no as novelists have become obsessed with their own mortality and whose work I think has, in my opinion, suffered tremendously because of that and they've become a lot less interesting. You're not just talking about your own mortality, you're talking, you know, about things in, in, in a much broader way. But you, there's, there's a sense of, in, in the writing of this book, that you've had to dig deep within yourself in a very different way to, say, your last book, Arctic Summer, which was a work of, uh, I don't want to say historical fiction, but a historical reimagining, um, perhaps, when a lot of research went into that, and it was about a particular period in, in E.M. Forster's life. This novel feels far more introspective but at the same time it has it looks out in a way which enables it to resonate um with with readers with audience it is not a book about you and your concerns no very very much not how to put this i've written a whole bunch of books that are either in the first person very very tightly in the first person or in the case of the em forster book still centered very much on one character. I've been wanting for a while to kind of break out and write a novel in the third person, and I'm not exactly sure what has held me back from that. There's an authenticity, if you like, to a first-person voice. There's this, a kind of inbuilt, inbuilt authority if you're saying, I did this or I said this. Whereas, you know, if you're writing in the third person, you still have to, to be the omniscient authority, but what gives me that authority? And who... Who is it who's speaking in the third person? I mean, these are not new problems, I guess, that writers have dealt with, but I've, I've never felt it open to me to kind of slip into that voice in the way that, that other people might. I needed something 
to kind of turn the key in the lock. And uh, the voice of the book is what made it possible for me to do this. Um, I don't think I would have wanted to spend, you know, three years of my life writing a conventional third-person narrative um, in which I was pretending to know everything um, and setting it up as if, you know, I wasn't quite present, but simply describing events that took place. I mean, these are the conventional um, uses or the, the con conventional functions of such a narrative. I started this novel in a much more conventional way, was really kind of flailing with it, and then I got sidetracked. I needed money, quite frankly, into doing a couple of drafts of a film script. On the day that I left that project, I returned to my novel and suddenly saw it was, you know, a kind of a, I wouldn't say a eureka moment, but it suddenly became obvious to me that the laws that govern a film script could be applied to a novel. In other words, there's a cinematic logic to the narration of this book. It goes up close or pulls back far like a camera does. You'll suddenly snap into a sort of close-up view of somebody, or you will suddenly be looking from above the scene at what's taking place, or you will jump in a in a way that isn't, um, you know, necessarily logical, but that makes a certain cinematic sense from one scene to another scene. So the point I'm making really is that seeing the possibilities of a voice like that made this narrative exciting for me. And it allowed me, in a way, to write the way I think, which, for some reason, I've never quite been able to do without, you know, confining it to first person and uh, and a very tight focus. We all we all know what the world looks like from inside our own heads, but it needed uh, something to liberate it into, you know, a larger sense of the world. And any scene, there are multiple, multiple points of view, multiple, multiple people interacting and everybody seeing things from a, a different perspective. So I wanted to get some of that, that kind of tightly bound um, flurry of it, if you like, the, the dense, the densely packed nature of reality, which I guess is how we, you know, the world we live in. It's interesting. I mean, my, my um, reading of it, um, we've referred a couple of times to, to the the way in which the book is written, the style, the structure. And as I said earlier, the, the, the book is, is, is divided into four parts. Uh, each one of those parts is a, is a dense whole. There, there is no, um, there's no breaks, there's no chapters, there's no pause, there's no moments. And then the it's novel... also a filmic logic, by the way. You, yes. You, you never exit a film, you're in it from beginning to end. Absolutely. And the, um, there's there's a sort of multiplicity of, of of voices and tones, and so this is not I mean as you've said this is not a simple third person narrative. Um, it alternates between different different voices. It it shifts between third voice to first voice, occasionally addressing the reader. And my initial experience from right at the beginning of the book was was one of I mean I'll, my first thought, sort of five or six pages in, was, oh, Damon, you're making this difficult, and then. That shifted very, very quickly, and I don't know, probably by page 15, page 20, page 25, I found myself um, completely immersed in the story, but in specifically within this kind of multiplicity of voices and voices of varying, varying engagements, if I can put it that way. 
And it seemed to me to be a really, really good way of telling this particular story. And by that, what I mean was that there was, there was a sense of sort of, of dislocation, of lack of, uh, lack of rootedness, lack of certainty. And there's a sense of sort of flailing around, which character am I listening to? Okay, it's that character. Okay, but then there's this voice. A, a, a kind of chaos is, is perhaps is, is too strong, but a, but a chaotic tendency. Okay, and it felt to me that that um, part of what you were doing were, was was using that form to reflect a sense of South Africanness and our relationship, and I'm not sure the our is that I'm referring to, which has become um, more and more dislocated, um, more messy, you know, impossible to nail down in a way how we approach, how, how we speak about, how we think about our own South Africanness, which I think we, 20, 25 years ago, was a completely different thing. And it's, it's interesting to, for me to listen to you talking about this in terms of a a filmic ethic and way of telling the story, for me, it was about the story that you were telling as opposed to a, a form thing. Does that make any sense to you? Yes, it does. Um, and I, I'm absolutely fine with it being received that way. I mean, I didn't sit and um, break down for myself what my intentions were in quite such a clinical way. It makes it makes sense, as I say, but you, you've got to you've got to feel excited by the the hopefully by the story you're telling, but also the way you're telling it. Um, if you want to keep people engaged, if you're not excited by what you're doing, nobody else is going to be. It somehow communicates. So I was excited by the multiplicity of voices. You, you, you talk about it being chaotic, and yes, I, I suppose it is, but let's call it an ordered sort of chaos. I think of it as a chorus, really, um, a kind of a South African chorus. And I mean, you're absolutely right. There is no single voice with which this country speaks. I mean, I I was thinking while you were talking about, uh, I, I'm not going to remember the name of the poem, but it's a famous Jeremy Cronin poem about the the many, many voices of this land. And uh, there's a yearning in it for a voice, for a new South African voice to speak. I don't think my voice, my book is providing that by any means, but um, it, it it's exactly the, the range of voices, some, you know, in a kind of vulgar mode, some in a sort of high-flown mode, others in a philosophical, that that really was part of what excited me. And of course, they're all linked by a narrative voice, which is telling its its own story. There's a um, technique in writing, which I think James Wood, the critic, gave a name to, which is close third person. In other words, if you're writing in the third person, and I'm, I'm saying Mervyn went into his office and, you know, switched on his computer. I can I can then approach even more closely in the narrative into seeing the world from your point of view. In other words, it, it I can I can break it down to the day the day was hot, damn, would this day never end? You know, the temperature was really getting to him. Uh it it actually lapses into what what is almost a first person voice. So I, I really let this run to an extreme with this. So, if you like, the characters have a kind of a gravitational pull, and when the narrative voice gets too close to them, it sort of bends into a first-person voice, sometimes for a paragraph or two before it'll break out again into a third-person voice. This is probably all sounding quite off-putting to a reader who's never read this, because hopefully 
um, <laughs> it's not going to come across in this, you know, uh, messy sort of way. There is definitely a logic and a drive to it. So that's what's hopefully going to carry somebody through. It does. It does. You don't have to worry about that. Uh, we'll be putting the book into into people's hands and telling them to to trust. And the trust of the reader is is rewarded. Um, well, one of the early readers overseas um, raised this point actually about um, that initially these jumps in the in the voice are quite disconcerting, but that they rapidly take on what he called an um, an intuitive logic. So I'm hoping that that is really how it works. It's the intuitive yes. logic. Uh, of somebody telling a story in their own personal way. I mean, this is the way I tell a story when I'm slightly drunk. I'll, I'll, I'll jump into an imitation of a particular person that I'm describing and then go from that back into a, a kind of more external narration and so on. So you could just think of it as, you know, me in a bar telling you this. Right, you're not claiming to have been slightly drunk all the way through the writing process, No, are but you? some of the way, some <laughs> of the way. <laughs> then I want to ask you about names. I'm always... I, it's a sort of slightly random thing, but I'm always fascinated by the process um, of, of naming characters and what goes into that. And some writers spend a lot more time thinking about their names than others. I particularly wanted to ask you about the driver of the hearse for Rachel's funeral right at the beginning of the book, um, whose name is Mervyn Glass. And we're told that in his core, Mervyn Glass is a frantic man. <laughs> and... Why? Why, Damon? Why Why did that man become Mervyn? Because I see to your core, Mervyn. I know you're frantic inside, despite the calm demeanor. Uh, I, <laughs> what I really... calm demeanor? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's not based on anybody in particular. Absolutely not. Um, I don't know. Names are funny. They, they're either right or they're wrong. And it can take a draft or two before you find the right name for a character. I mean, I often work with a a name just as a, you know... A, a kind of something to hold hold that character in place, knowing that it has to change at some future point. But yeah, a name's got to convey something of the quality of the character that you're going for. But, uh, you know, I read other people's books and sometimes the names bother me. I just think, no, someone like Hemingway is quite inclined to give his main male characters quite butch names that r reflect an aspiration rather than a reality to me. Um, I'm looking for a name that reflects something of the reality of that person as I've created them. Um, the, the promise, the novel for me is, not for me, uh, it's, it's, it's a particular story. It's a geographically uh, a specific story. It's a, it's, it's a South African story. It's also, it's time bound, but it's also universal. It's about family and loss and disintegration, both personal and collective. Um, but, at its heart, it is very, very South African, and there's a there's a reading of it which is that it is specifically about whiteness in South Africa. Um, the, the 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 promise the of of from which the the book gains its title um, that that we spoke about earlier this this unfulfilled promise, um, this you know handover of this small sort of ramshackle house um, which sits over the entire text over the entire story in a way that it's it's simultaneously it's a it's a very small thing it's a um wholly uh in i don't want to say insignificant insubstantial um uh event which 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 doesn't happen but through its loss through its absence it gains this um import 
um, and it becomes a much, much bigger thing. And it made me, it reminded me of the, of the, the power of literature and the importance of literature to take us away from our, you know, daily concerns, or, you know, from the headlines of the day, from what people are, are thinking about today, this week, last month, and have a slightly more considered, reflective, longer view. And particularly in, in the South African context, it felt like you're not, you're not a hectoring or a, or a lecturing writer. You don't, you don't write a political novel as a, you know, a, a force to action or, or something like that. But it does also feel like a, an, an impassioned and necessary mirror that you are holding up to white South Africans and going to, to us. Think, stretch your thoughts. Think back a little bit. Think about the transition. Think about what has happened over the last 25 years. And think about the place of whiteness in South Africa. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of inescapable. I am a white South African and, uh, you know, I'm kind of steeped in all that that means. We've had it very easy here. I mean, considering our history, considering what we came out of, things could have been so much worse. Yet all you hear from a great many white South Africans is, you know, endless lament and complaint about how inadequate things are, how stuck and how useless everything is. And, you know, no doubt I've fallen prey to that same kind of self-pity myself. But, yeah, it, it does seem obvious to me that not enough has changed, to put it simply. You know, this question of the land is not something I've raised. You hear it all the time. It seems to be a symbol, really, more than anything else, because, you know, not everyone in South Africa wants to be a farmer. But there is a, there, there is a large symbolic charge to the notion of land, of, of basically having a place you can call yours, where you feel you belong and that you call home, and it seems shameful and shocking to me that that is not true for so many South Africans still. And also that so many white South Africans, you know, people in my own family included, I don't, I don't know what the word is. There's just an incredible selfishness to us a lot of the time that we will defend and defend and defend what we have as though it's our right. When in fact, you know, what we have was once taken from other people. So, yeah, I, I don't want to get into a hectoring political message, but I do feel very strongly the issue that this particular black worker feels herself, that she was promised this small, broken-down house on a useless piece of land. And even that, the white family will fight and fight and fight not to give her, even though it was promised. And, I, you know, that's... That's part of the story of my book, but it is very much part of, part of the story of this country, too. I, you know, I don't need to tell you that. So, yeah, I do, I do have strong feelings on the subject. Mm. Well, in the absence of, of uh, launches and watching you 
assign loads and loads of copies of your book in the book lounge to an audience of rabid fans. Is rabid the right word? No, rabid's not the right word, but I'll go with it. Um, it has been it's been wonderful to to be able to to sit down with you and talk a little bit about about the promise. Uh, it is a very very special book, Damon. Um, congratulations, and it has been lovely to see you. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much, Mervyn. Really glad we could have this talk. The Book Lounge is running a pre-order special on The Promise. If you order before this Friday, which is the 30th of April, you get 15% off with the option of Damon signing your copy or personally inscribing it. Deliveries are free within 20 kilometers. Send an email to booklounge at gmail.com to request a copy. Before we get to staff recommendations, I'd like to quickly mention a new podcast that the team behind this podcast is producing. The podcast is called The Empty Chair, created by Penn South Africa. It's a series of conversations where writers and thinkers talk about making sense of this time during the pandemic in various ways. You can find The Empty Chair by Penn South Africa wherever you found this podcast. This week, we're turning our focus to science fiction and fantasy. There are a number of staff members who love the genre and are very well read in it, and we'll be hearing their recommendations soon. But first I had a conversation with Colin, who's one of the Book Lounge staff members, about the difficulty of categorizing science fiction and fantasy books in a bookstore. I'm here with Colin, who works at the Book Lounge. We're having a conversation today about something that you've brought up a couple of times because it's a source of frustration for you. And that is the way in which literary fiction is categorized in one section of the shop, or of bookshops in general, and science fiction is categorized in a different section of the shop. Yes, so the the science fiction section, which is more broadly a sort of fantastical genre section, so um, fantasy and science fiction usually ends up there. It's it's very common for um, shops and for book retailers to have that section, but they tend to be reluctant, they seem to be reluctant to put books there. Like, if it can be put into quote-unquote high literary fiction, they would rather put it there because it tends to be viewed as more accessible, more general audience. Mm -hmm. So what ends up ending in this genre section is works that are less experimental, who are not trying to break the boundaries of those genres quite as hard. It's going to be something that is safely very much in that section. Mm. You cannot escape it. There's there's a dragon, there's magic, there's spaceships. The overall section loses from it. This is not necessarily a critique of books that play it safe within their, their, their own conventions. Yeah. Authors of every stripes do it all the time, and that's perfectly fine. It's just, if that is all that's there, then that becomes a problem. The way we understand, uh, quote-unquote, hard sci-fi and hard fantasy are very Western, very colonial, and very white. And and as a result, you end up with a whole section that is dominated by uh, straight white men protagonists doing warfare, mostly. And that is not everything that that genre of writing can do. Mm. That is not everything that it has done and is doing. And to me, as a lifelong fan of those types of story, it, it's always frustrating to go to a shop 
and see that the section that says fantasy or sci-fi is there. And when I go there, there is very little that surprises me or interests me or excites me about it. Right, yeah, so if you're a sci-fi fan and you shop in the sci-fi section, you're likely to miss out some of the best and most exciting sci-fi books that have been released recently. Absolutely. And and you might fall back um, into the conservative and regressive corners of that genre. Mm. And we all know those exist. Like, um, the response to N.K. Jemison's career tells yeah. us that there are huge segments of that readership that are still very wrapped up in, in conservative views of who should be telling those stories mm. and how those stories should be told, quote-unquote, correctly. Yeah. And if, if so many books that challenge those structures are, are instantly removed from that section, there is less of a possibility of disrupting mm. these assumptions. What changes has the book launch made based on this line of thinking? Well, we tried to sort of come up with different criteria for how we label these books. The science section and fantasy section remains one of those sections that is regularly asked for. Customers will come to the counter and ask to have that pointed out to them specifically. So we are reluctant to just do away with it altogether and put all fiction in, in, in one big section. But at the same time, we wanted to open up how we understand this sort of speculative space. Yeah. So we broadly came up with two criteria. The first is, is the element that is not part of observable reality? Is that element consistent throughout the story? Is there, is there world building? Is there, um, it, it works this way and it keeps working this way throughout the story. And second, is that element crucial to the functioning of the book? Can that element be removed and the book still makes sense? Yeah. Is it decorative or is it fundamental to the functioning of the novel? And it was surprising how many books ended up making that transition, like mm. moving to the other side. And a lot of these books were books that I might never have picked up where they were currently sitting. What were some of those books that ended up moving? Uh, well, Borwell moved, arguably, in my opinion, it's about time. He does dystopia. Yeah. Paul takes the form of a mortal girl, moved over, half of Outward's output moved over, Naomi Alderman's The Power moved across, a couple of Ishiguro's. A good example of a book that I picked up because of that move was uh, Wayetu Moore's She Would Be King. Again, this is a book that is clearly being marketed as, no, 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 this is serious fiction. So the cover is fairly nondescript. And when I looked at the back cover and it's set during the construction of Liberia as a country yeah. and focuses on, on three characters who have supernatural abilities. And, and I saw that and I thought, oh my goodness, superheroes in Africa, I, I am 100% here for this. And, and I read it and it is more complicated than that, of course. Like a lot of fantastical stories set in Africa, there is this difficulty in categorizing it yeah. because we tend to approach them with lenses that don't necessarily work mm. for those types of stories. There will be a tension between is it realism with liberties, is it magical realism, is it science fiction? None of those categorization necessarily apply. Yeah, they've at least been very contested. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and um, She Would Be King definitely exists 
uh, near this this blurriness, this unknowability, but I went back to those criteria. The powers of the characters in question are consistent throughout the book. They progress the skills that the characters learn and then apply to achieve their goals. And the outcome of the book is not possible without them having these supernatural abilities. And so it, it is now sitting in, in our science fiction, fantasy and speculative fiction section. I found it to be a fascinating book, again because of what it does with notions of protector paragon figures yeah. uh, whose abilities defy reality and, and, and they stand as both defenders and symbols of a people. So superheroes. So superheroes, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. So Colin, you know, I don't think of myself as a sci-fi fan yes. and yet all the books we've mentioned are books that I love <laughs> and this sounds like a book that I would love as well. It is, but that's that, that has been part of my frustration, is a lot of people, when they think science fiction or fantasy, they think of, I would say, the least challenging those types of stories have to offer. And, and if you are a kind of reader who enjoys being challenged and, and enjoys sort of feeling, I, I, I do not see reality the way I did, then, yeah, no, you might not be tempted <laughs> to go there because of how it is currently being constructed. Yeah. Okay, so the sci-fi section has been updated and is, yes, worth, is worth coming to check out. Uh, I think it is. I, it's been very gratifying to see even just like a couple of people noticing that there has been a change and being excited to see authors whom they love sort of rubbing elbows next to each other, doing fantastical things together. There's some really exciting stuff that you never knew existed and was exactly what you wanted to read. Amazing. Thanks, Colin. You're very welcome. Next up, Carmen shares a newly discovered passion for a science fiction legend. I am going to talk about Octavia Butler because I absolutely love her and she is my religion. Um, I feel like a little bit of an imposter talking about her because I only started reading her book at the beginning of this year, but I, since I started reading I've read four of her books already. Octavia's writing is just so good. She was a prolific writer. She won the Hugo and Nebula Prize twice, and she was the first science fiction writer to become a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. In her books, she explores race, gender, inequality, eugenics, religion, classism, imperialism, colonialism, so many different things. Parable of the Soul was the first book I read, and I also think it's the easiest one to get into because it's the least science fiction-y of all of her books. So it's set in the year 2024. It's a dystopian world that kind of resembles the world we're living in now. So it's a little bit scary. Basically, society has collapsed because of climate change, increasing inequality, and corporate greed. She wrote this book in response to a bill that was going to be passed in, I think, California at the time, where undocumented immigrants weren't going to have access to basic social services. And she kind of said, okay, well then, who is the next group that's going to be cut off from social services? What happens if the trash isn't collected? What happens if the fire department doesn't respond to fires? What happens if police only investigate crimes if you bribe them to? And so she had this really interesting way of looking at what was happening in the news and in the world and kind of extrapolating that towards the future and saying, like, this is where it could be going if we aren't careful. In Parable of the Sower, the main character is Lauren Oya Olamina, 
She's a 15, 16 year old girl and she is looking at the world around her and she's seeing the inequality and she realizes that at some point her community is going to fall, like it can't, it can't carry on forever. And she also realizes that no one is going to save her, like the government isn't going to come and protect them and fix inequality or do anything. She's going to have to save herself. So she does what she knows, which is preaching, which she learned from her father, and she starts preaching her own religion, Earthseed. And that's also like one of my favorite Octavia Butler quotes. It's from the Testament, I suppose. Um, and the quote is, all that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. In all of her stories, for every society or group that perishes, there's a story of rebuilding and repair. And I think that that's the most powerful message that there is in her books. I'm not going to go into her other books because there's no time, but we have a lot of Octavia Butler books in store. Come in and get them and read them and talk to us about them because we love Octavia. Finally, Naomi recommends two very different science fiction books. So I'm talking about N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy. The first book is the fifth season. I really enjoyed the series because a lot of times the sci-fi and fantasy sections, they are put together, but the books are very different. And the series is actually a rare example of the two being combined quite well. It's like set in the future, there's some kind of climate disaster that's happened, it's dystopian. Yeah, so the main character also has magical powers. She's kind of on the run and, you know, there's a hero's journey. So it's a nice combination of both. And N.K. Jemisin won the Hugo Award for all three of the books in this series three years in a row, which was incredible, especially because the, when the first one came out, there was a huge backlash. There was quite a large faction on the Hugo Awards committee pushing to keep science fiction and fantasy as white and as male as possible. And I think the fact that she won three years in a row just showed what a huge mistake they were making and how unaware they are of their actual fan base and how many women and people of color love this genre but just don't find a way in. So that was it was really fun. It's a really interesting concept. And if you if you're not sure which of the genres you like, you can start here because you'll find you'll find both interesting. The other book I'm talking about is Ted Chang's short story collection, Exhalation. It's his second short story collection. He writes really interesting thought experiment, philosophical type of science fiction. So he takes his short stories to untangle a concept. So what would really happen if aliens made contact with Earth? It's not like necessarily going to be guns and fireworks. There's like a lot of practical aspects to it. Like how do you understand someone's language when you don't even share the same bodies? And he writes about time travel, about what consciousness means, about how the brain works. If you're into someone who's like, who takes a very difficult concept and then very cleverly untangles it with characters and a story, then he's really good reading. His previous short story collection, Stories of Your Life and Other Stories, the title story for that one was the basis for the movie Arrival. It's a very slow and beautiful and atmospheric movie and somehow 
you can't really say which is better the short story or the movie because they're they capture each other's essence completely like it's a really good interpretation thanks for listening everyone if you enjoy this podcast please share it with a friend that you think might like it too or let us know by emailing booklounge@gmail.com all of the books mentioned in this episode are listed in the description and if you'd like to buy one you can find them at the book lounge but if you're not in south africa please do support your local independent bookstore thank you so much to damon golgood for sitting down for this interview this episode was produced and edited by the brilliant andrew burnett with some assistance from me we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode until then keep reading